I would complain about um, having to stand behind the pulpit, not on the steps because of the size of the floral arrangement. But uh, since my wife did it, I, I think my complaining should be uh, uh, kept to myself. <laughs> um, grab your Bibles and open them, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 53. And um, I'm going to read to you in a minute. I'm going to read you three verses out of Isaiah 53. But before I do, I want to tell you a story. Oh, oh before I tell you that story, concerning Gigi, uh, we, we resumed yesterday and um, uh, taught something that has been taught here before. But uh, next Saturday and the Saturday after that will be brand new material. Um, actually, it, it was spawned by the death of my hero, R.C. Sproul, on December the 14th. I, I don't know whether you've seen this YouTube. You can find it. Uh, just go to YouTube and maybe Google something like, uh, I'll tell you in a minute. But it's only a minute and 52 seconds, or maybe it might be two minutes and two seconds. But it's, um, it, it's a que- he's on a panel, and, and uh, a questioner puts a question to him about um, the severity of God to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And he says, um, what's the matter with you people? And then he launches into um, this, uh, it's not a tirade, but it's, it's, it's a groan. Um, and then John MacArthur weighs in and, and talks about, if the Christian church is supposed to be, is going to be changed, um, then preaching is going to have to be changed all over the country. And in this particular, that men have a wrong view of God and a wrong view of man. And so the Gigi class uh, this Saturday will be the right view of God, and then the next one will be the right view of man. Um, I think they're right. I think we have way too small a God and way too big a man. So that's what will be the subject of the last two GGs of this level coming this Saturday and the next. Guys, many years ago, many years ago, uh, a group of tourists were making their way through, um, through the home where the German composer Ludwig van Beethoven <clears throat> had spent so many of its latter years. Um, as they arrived at the... Um, the conservatory, uh, the, the conservatory in his home, where he had spent so many hours at the piano, the, the, the guide paused and spoke rather in hushed tones. And he said, and here is the master's instrument. And a well-meaning but uh, rather thoughtless woman in the back of the group pushed her way up to the front, sat down on the piano bench, and immediately began to play one of Beethoven's great sonatas. And she said to the group, I, I suppose a lot of people love to play this piano. And the guide, the tour guide, moved quickly over to her and placed his hands on hers to stop her. And then he answered, he said, Ignace Paderewski was here last summer. And several of the group asked him 
would he play something? And his response was, oh no, I am not worthy to play the same keyboard as the great Beethoven. My point is, ladies and gentlemen, there are certain scenes in Scripture, certain texts, that seem, <clears throat> they seem just too priceless, too sacred to touch. One such text is ours this morning. So, take off your shoes, take off your sandals, because we're on, um, we're in holy ground. So, and come with me and gaze at the scene that's being described here. Let me read you three verses. Isaiah chapter 53, beginning at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, this endures forever. Guys, these three verses um, are the heart of Isaiah 53. What they're describing in theological terms, they're describing substitutionary atonement. Which is, which is the heart and soul of the gospel. Remove substitutionary atonement, and there is no gospel. This is the center of gravity of all of biblical revelation, these three verses. Guys, do you remember the story in Genesis 22 where Abraham was asked of God to go sacrifice his only beloved son, Isaac. And so they made their way to Mount Moriah. And um, as they were walking up the, the hill, um, Isaac turned to his dad and he said, Dad, I, you know, I, I see the wood and I, I, see, the, um, I see the fire, but, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham replied, God will provide, my son. These three verses in Isaiah 53 describe Yahweh's provision. Or perhaps like this. So many of you have read and enjoyed um, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's part of the Chronicles of Narnia. And one of the four kids... Um, his name was Edmund, 
Edmund is, is lured away by the Turkish delights and, that were offered to him by the white witch. And um, having been lured, he is then captured and he is enslaved by her. Susan, um, Edmund's sister, um, asks, is there, in, is there something that we can do to rescue my brother? And the reply is, there is something we can do. But it must be done by Aslan. Aslan must do it. And ladies and gentlemen, what Aslan must do is described right here. Aslan must die in Edmund's place, which is called substitutionary atonement. Guys, if you'll look at the text... In light of all of the widespread rejection that is recorded in verse 3, you will notice that the text says that in spite of that, the servant who was introduced in 52.13, the servant has borne our griefs. He's carried away our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Four times, ladies and gentlemen, that personal pronoun, our, is used. Our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities. And yet, as you, as you see what is said in the second half of verse four, had we been a visitor to Jerusalem on the day that Jesus Christ was crucified. Seeing him impaled on that, Christ, that cross, we, we might have concluded, oh my, that's one bad dude hanging up there. I mean, he's a marked man. I mean, a, some kind of notorious criminal because he has been smitten by God. Nobody seemed to understand that the real criminal The real criminal was not Jesus. The real criminal was us. It was not his griefs or his sorrows or his transgressions or his iniquities. They were ours. You know, uh, some of you may not appreciate the way that we observe the Lord's Supper here. Uh, you know, it, it seemed to me that it should be done more than quarterly. Some churches do the Lord's Supper quarterly. Some churches do it weekly, some monthly. Uh, John Calvin insisted that it should be done daily. But we do it monthly. But every month, I stand out there and I say these words. Um, I take a loaf of bread and I say, this is my body broken 
for you. You know, a text that everybody in the world seems to know, in Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, the church. You know, there's a, there's a Greek um, preposition. Uh, the, the Greek word is huper. It's found, it's found dozens of times in the New Testament. But the preposition huper means in the place of, on behalf of. This is my body broken huper. In the place of, on behalf of, you. I want you to notice in verse 5 that, um, that sin is treated as if it were a disease. L- look at the last sentence of verse 5. And with his stripes we are healed. You see, you can't be healed um, if you are not sick. And, and this is a sickness that is, that is fatal. Sin, like cancer, is abnormal. God made Adam healthy. But when sin entered, everything was, was, was put into disarray. Sin weakens us. It it separates us from God. It it causes pain. It's contagious. And in spite of all that, we love it. You know, there's a story in in the New Testament that that I think many of you are familiar with is in John 5. It's the story of the the man on a cot who who is set beside the pool of Bethesda and um, the story is that if, uh, if the angel comes and, you know, rustles the water, the first man that gets into the water is healed. So Jesus comes by and says, you know, you've been here for years. Why are you, why are you lying there? And the guy says, well, you know, uh, when the angel comes and rustles the water, I have, no one, I have no one to put me in the pool because, you see, sin has rendered me paralyzed. Sin has taken a healthy heart and turned it into a heart of stone. Oh, Dr. Young, I mean, uh, those are some pretty uh, unpleasant thoughts. Yeah, they are. But you see, no one goes to the doctor until he knows that he is fatally ill. You know, the text, it could, have, it could have used this language. It could have described it as a crime because certainly sin is a crime. But then if it were a crime, the picture that we would have is a, a picture of a criminal and the police. But instead, the image is that of a physician and a patient who's very ill 
and made ill by his sin. And then the text goes on to discuss the remedy in verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And here it is. And with his stripes, with his wounds, we are healed. I mean, do I have to go into those wounds? I'm not going to. But, but only to say this much. The picture that we get in the scriptures, particularly in Psalm 22, is that, that his suffering involved his whole manhood. Listen to this. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. We have sick people, and the remedy that's being proffered is the remedy that is found in the substitutionary sufferings of Jesus Christ. The, suffer, the substitutionary sin-bearing of Jesus Christ, not for his own sins, but for mine. Jesus was punished as if all of my sin was his sin. My sin is now his sin. Not in the actual doing of it. No, 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 that was me. But you see, I'm the sheep. I'm the wayward sheep that keeps running away from the shepherd. And so the shepherd has to come get me and then die in my place. I'm the Edmund. I'm the Edmund that was lured away by the Turkish delights. And as a result, I was captured and enslaved by the evil one. And so he has to come get me and snatch me out of those clutches. And I want you to note this, ladies and gentlemen, nothing should be more thrilling to your soul than this. By his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed. It's not by his stripes, his wounds help us heal. It's not by his stripes, we are set on the road to recovery. It's not by his stripes, we are made healable. No, no, ladies and gentlemen. It is by his stripes, by his stripes, we are healed. It is not faith that heals us. Christ heals with his wounds, five of them, and you are not granted the privilege to add to that work of Christ so that it might be done better. It's by his stripes we are healed. And if that is true, 
which it says there it is, then how could God possibly ask for more from the healed? God will not ask for payment twice, once from his son and then once from us. But ladies and gentlemen, you must make no mistake about this. That payment for sin was offered only by Christ. You know, um, when you watch television, all of these, these newfound medicines, the, uh, the advertisers are quick to point out the side effects, which they're trying to avoid lawsuits. But let me tell you the, the side effects of being healed by this Savior. Number one, the conscience. You know, guys, some of you enter here week after week with this conscience that somehow grabs you in the middle of the night or elsewhere and reminds you of that which you did when you were in college or reminds you what you did in the early days of your marriage or it, it takes you back to that thing that you did that you want no one else in this room to know that you did. Well, one of the side effects of this work is that we are healed. You know, one of the quotes that I love to quote is J.C. Ryle who said, the only thing that can quiet a guilty conscience is the blood of Jesus sprinkled on it. Well, one of the side effects of this grand substitutionary atonement is that that blood is indeed poured on my guilty conscience. And it is now quieted. I'll tell you another one of the side effects of being healed is that you no longer want to trifle with sin. You... you you don't find ways that you can sidestep the rules. That spiritual indifference is gone because a part of what happens when I get healed is that my whole character changes. I become a new man, a new woman. Now, let me show you one last thing, which to me is the sweetest of it all mentioned in this text. I want you to notice, ladies and gentlemen, who is behind all this substitutionary atonement and these wounds that were inflicted. Look at the last sentence of verse 6. And the Lord, and that is the Hebrew term Yahweh, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who's behind all this work? Yahweh's behind all this work. You know, guys, in all of the confusion that seems to exist among evangelicals, we, we, we seem to think as if Jesus went into the presence of his father and said, oh, father, if I will go and die for them, would you please love them? You know, God, if, 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 if I go and 
and offer myself as the substitute for sin, would that be enough to, to rinse your arms so that you will love those undeserving people? Ladies and gentlemen, it was not the atonement that secured the love of God for us. It was the love of the Father that secured the atonement. You know the text. For God so loved the world that he gave. Guys, the causative will of God the Father stands behind all that Jesus underwent. The sin was laid on him not by accident. The sin was laid on him by the purposeful intentions of his father. And I would point out to you, that's where the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe went wrong. The work of Jesus Christ was not some payment made to the white witch in in order to set us free. The work of Jesus Christ is an expression of the inexplicable love of God to satisfy his own burning holiness. The dying of God the Son is the doing of God the Father. All of this substitutionary sin-bearing it originated in the heart of God the Father. May I read this? In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, let me close with five truths that I hope will transform you. One, another one of my heroes, Jim Kennedy, who is also dead, the man from whom we first heard the gospel. He wrote a book entitled Truths That Transform. That's where I got that title, that little sentence. So I'm hoping that these five truths will transform. Number one, what exquisite security is ours as a result of the finished work of Christ? Who can be vulnerable if Jesus Christ has borne your sin? Listen to the way that Paul puts it in Romans 8. Who shall bring anything against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Why am I so safe? Because I'm a good boy? Because I tithe? I'm safe because Jesus Christ has borne all of my iniquities. What exquisite security eternally is ours. Secondly, how inexplicable God's love must be to effect an atonement such as this. You know, guys, the culture... The culture clamors. They want to hear about the love of God and the love of God alone. I agree. But it must be this love. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Third, guys, sin is no small thing if only such an atonement as this is required to forgive it. This is God's way of dealing with sin through a substitute who bears my sin. But listen to me. There is no other way. There is no second way. The only way that sin will be dealt with is through the substitutionary sin-bearing of Jesus Christ. Four. How dreadful is the consequence apart from this atonement? My friend, if all of this is of no interest to you, it is because you do not know that you are sick. And I will tell you of a truth this moment. As of this very second, you are either healed or you are not. As all of you sit here this minute, you are either healed
or you are not. Finally, how can this healing be mine? Well, first of all, you must own your own sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. You've got to recognize that you're in that we. And knowing that, then you must embrace this remedy. My friend, do you plan to bear your sin on your own? Don't do that. Don't enter God's presence trying to bear your own sin. But I will tell you this. Either Christ will bear it for you. Or you will bear it. To your everlasting ruin. There's a story about Spurgeon. I, um, I think he's my number two hero. Lloyd-Jones is my number one. Spurgeon's my number two. But there's a story about when Spurgeon was converted. He was an 18-year-old lad who um, was particularly under conviction. And it was a snowy day, and he was out walking in his village, and he heard that some singing going on in a church and so he decided he would go in, and so he went into this church in the midst of the snow and, and sat on the back row. And it just so happened that the snow had prevented the preacher from, from making it to church. And so a layman had, um, had stood up to preach, and um, his text was Isaiah 45, 22. And if I might paraphrase it, it in essence says, look and be saved. And the preacher, sensing that the young man on the back row was particularly under conviction, he pointed to Spurgeon and he said, Son, look. Look to Christ and be saved. How does this become mine? I recognize I'm sick. And I look to the only remedy available. And may I say it this way. Take the medicine. Our Father, um, we will stand in your everlasting debt just because you have given us this book. The idea that you have gone to such extremes to try and explain all that is true 
temporally and eternally is a great gift. And particularly, Lord, in these three verses, we find, we find this marvelous thing that you have accomplished on the behalf of your people. Would you cause others to look and be saved? Would you cause others to take this medicine and be healed? Would you cause them to run from their own device and lay hold of the only remedy available? Father, um, for the rest of us who have done that sometime in the past, would you remind us that by his stripes, we're not just getting better, but we're healed. There is nothing else to ask of the healed. The payment has been made for us by Christ and you will not ask of us another payment. Do all that, Father, for the, for the glory of Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen.